Hi everybody, welcome to Massive Late Fees audio commentary of either the greatest Christmas movie ever or a movie that's not a Christmas movie at all, depending on who you ask. Uh, Die Hard. <clears throat> Mike, where do you stand on the big debate? Is this is this a Christmas movie or not? I don't really care too much. I mean, I understand. I don't. I think it's technically not because it just takes place during Christmas. It's not like you know, overtly Christmassy themes. But I, I watch it every Christmas. It's like my one Christmas tradition. Yeah, I have. Um, I have a uh, right now a um, poll up on our Twitter thing about whether it's a Christmas movie or not, and it's already pretty heated in there. This this film was made by or directed by the great John McTiernan. Uh, who also directed uh, Predator and uh, several other good movies. He was quite a uh, successful director in the 80s. Do you know the uh, whole origin behind Die Hard? Yeah, the book and everything. <laughs> yeah. It, it It's funny because it involves this movie. A lot of people don't don't realize that this movie is based on a book um, called... And it's technically a sequel. Yeah, the, for, the original book was called The Detective, and it was written by uh, a man named Roderick Thorpe. Um, and uh, it was a 1966 book, I think. And then uh, this and this is one of the reasons why I, I know it. Hardcore listeners to the um, podcast will, will know that I love Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack. And Frank Sinatra actually starred in the movie version of The, of the Detective, the Roderick Thorpe's first book um, in 1968. Uh, then the, the in the book, the detective's name is Joe Leland, <clears throat> as opposed to um, uh, John McClane. And um, yeah, it uh, it was a big hit for Sinatra. It was one of Sinatra's biggest hits. And uh, uh, Roderick Thorpe saw. A, mo- the, a movie called The Towering Inferno that a lot of people I'm sure are familiar with. And um, he had a dream about, uh, after watching that movie, he had a dream about uh, a guy in a building like that being chased by people with guns. And he developed that into a sequel book to The Detective called Nothing Lasts Forever, which came out in 1979. And that's the book that they based um, Die Hard on. And it's funny because in Sinatra's contract for the movie, for the detective movie that he did in in 68, he had first right of refusal uh, if there was ever a a sequel to that book made into a movie. So he was originally offered this role (laughs) for this movie. He was 73 at the time. And yeah, uh, had been some scene involved, <laughs> and obviously he turned it down. Um, uh, you know, I'm sure in large part to, to due to his age. A lot of people. This guy's guy like the sleaziest guy of the entire '80s, I think, right here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And later is just doing cocaine on the desk. It's uh, he's yeah, he, he's one of my favorites yeah. though because of yeah, the sleaze factor. This this is a see. I, I can't tell if this is a good movie or just a movie. It's definitely a fun movie. I, I love watching it. I love rewatching it. There's mm-hmm. so many like great iconic people like in it. Like just half the people in it have been like amazing in other things too. Yeah, I I think I think it's a pretty well made movie. It's not. 
It's it's weird because you know it's when, a good action movie for sure. I mean, there's definitely some shit ones with those. Yeah, and when you talk about film criticism, sometimes it can be uh, difficult to discern between a movie that's obviously made for artistic purposes and a movie that's just fun, but both can obviously be good. And, you know, when you look at stuff like like this small pan around, uh, you know, her kids and stuff, the reveal that um, that uh, that's her husband and everything with the pictures, I mean, that's that kind of stuff is part of what makes uh, the movie good. I, I think John McTiernan is a, a good director, for sure. So I would say that on the whole, it's a it's a well made movie. So like uh, another one of my favorite movies, uh, True Lies. It's not only a good like action movie, but it's also a good movie in general. Yeah, yeah, and um, um, what's his name? Uh, the guy whose eyes you can't look into, oh, James Cameron. James Cameron uh, is obviously a very good filmmaker. Uh, the other oh the other thing too about. Um, the what I was gonna say is, you know, so they offered the role to Sinatra, and they they offered the role to a lot of people before um, it went to Bruce Willis. A lot of people who are younger might not realize that back in back in these times, Bruce Willis was considered a comedic actor, not a uh, a uh, action star by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, they originally uh, like uh, Clint Eastwood had the rights for a while to this uh, to this movie, and he thought about making making it starring himself, which obviously he was also too old at that time. He was probably in his forties, which is kind of you know older than you expect McLean to be. Yeah, I think he's actually he was actually probably older than that, even in the early eighties. I think he was probably approaching his fifties. I would think oh. at least late forties. Um, that's his little driver's name. Yep, love this guy too. Um. And then they asked uh, they asked Sylvester Stallone. I think um, I believe him. And Arnold Schwarzenegger was approached briefly. The uh, the man who wrote uh, this, the screenwriter of this movie, also wrote Commando. A lot of people think that this is this was supposed to be a Commando sequel, but according to him, uh, it never really was. I think his name is uh, Stephen DeSouza. Um, so you can tell John McClane's a man of the people. He's writing up front in the limo. That's right. But, that you know, that's a good point because the, the one of the things, and like, you know, obviously <clears throat> the Die Hard movies kind of went off this this path as it as it went along but one of the but one of the things that makes this movie kind of special especially for the time is you know action movies of this era because this came out in 1988 and action movies of the 80s you know featured guys like Schwarzenegger these huge indestructible human beings that you never felt any fear for because they were just like giant monsters. <laughs> Sorry, I like how I like how insistent that he is to to clarify his relation status right there. Yeah. Like, oh come on, are you divorced, separated? <laughs> Do some exposition here, man. He, he wants to know. Come on, I might not need to know this, but the audience wants to hear it. That's right. But uh, but yeah, this was like the first movie that kind of um, featured uh, a action star that was just, I mean, obviously, you know, he's got some muscle and stuff, but he's not some giant, uh, you know, guy here. He doesn't feel indestructible throughout the movie. He just feels like a guy, you know, in a bad situation with a little bit of skill because, you know, he's a police officer. Um, but yeah, and that's that's one of the things that kind of makes this different is having a more of an everyman in that role. The iconic uh, Christmas song, I might add, uh, <laughs> Christmas time in Hollis, Queens. That's right. 
<laughs> you know, I'm I'm completely up. There you go, based on the novel by Roderick Thorpe. Yep. But I'm going to say this is the uh, first rap song ever in a movie. Could be. How <laughs> would it be at 88? <laughs> <laughs> but that like, bit. I'm breaking too. Jeb Stewart did the screenplay for this? Uh, I think he worked on it, yeah. I know that. The grave, did he? <laughs> yeah, the. Uh, the um, Civil War General. The Civil War General, yeah. The eyes of uh, the eyes of the um, of the army, that's what uh, Robert E. Lee called him. That's some trivia for you guys right there. <clears throat> this building that he's looking at that we can't I see. Is that the Fox headquarters. It is. Yes, it's uh, it's their downtown corporate offices, which was being const- like I mean, obviously construction is pretty much done, but it was still kind of uh, under construction. A lot of places yeah, on the inside. Yep, and. Uh, and I, I've heard that they went through a lot of legal wrangling with the makers of the movie. You know, they they Fox obviously produced and distributed the film, um, but they went through a lot of legal wrangling with the uh, the filmmakers about the different stuff they wanted to do in the building, <laughs> like the explosions and stuff like that. I mean, this is their brand new building, and they uh, they were uh, pretty nervous about a lot of the stuff they wanted to do. Oh, that'd be kind of fun, like uh, you know. To have that, like, a building you work in and, like, a movie you like. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, Nakatoma Tower, which obviously is uh, iconic now. But, yeah, that's uh, 20th Century Fox's downtown offices. And this, this directory is very skated at the time for our younger viewers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I always thought someone uh, was, was leaving money on the table by, by not making, like, a, you know, a Fox building ornament for Christmas, and so many people do believe it's a Christmas movie. Yeah. Yeah, that's... I don't know what the legal ramifications would be involved with that, you know, because it might be technically uh, copyrighted or, you know, patented uh, trademark or something. Right. Yeah, I I, I don't know. I don't know uh, how how that works with building design and stuff like that. I'm fairly certain that you couldn't put the name Nakatoma on it, and obviously you couldn't put 20th Century Fox on it. Um... But I don't know if you could do one that's just, you know, that looks like the building. Already, you know, the way everything is kind of shot and the way all these people are looking at each other and stuff, it's, it feels uneasy. But, uh, yeah. Yep. Think... yep. Oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. But uh, it's kind of funny because this is like, again, during the 80s, like there's a big fear that the Japanese were buying the country up. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, told me, uh, it's it's kind of funny, there's a joke to, and a reference to that in here. Okay. If you look, I think it's when he gives his big speech, like the next time you see him, uh, he's standing by like this kind of waterfall thing. Yeah. That's, that's actually, suppo- in the movie, it's supposed to be um, Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, Falling Water. Really? Yeah, they say he just like, you know, like the joke is they just bought it and put it in his like, you know, corporate. Oh, that is hilarious. Yeah, I'll have to look at, oh. Huh. Yeah. Well, it does look a lot like it. Yeah, so it's like, just why would he, he buy it and put it in his building? I've never noticed that before, but, um, and you can see kind of the look on his face. You know, it just happened where um, where he looks at it, you know, they, they pan across the waterfall and stuff, kind of pan up, and he just kind of shakes his head like, uh, <laughs> oh, they're buying everything kind of thing. Yeah, wow. The, no, I did not know that, and that is... Uh, I can absolutely see that. It really does look a lot like that. (laughs) 
Yeah, they offered this role to, like I said, uh, Stallone, uh, Harrison Ford, oh, De Niro. I guess Tom Selleck, probably. Um, yeah, I think so. Nick Nolte, too. Um, Mel Gibson, Richard Gere. They offered it to a bunch of people. Oh, including uh, MacGyver himself, Richard Dean Anderson. If uh, if Tom Selleck was in this at the end when he tapes it into his back, he just put his mustache instead. That's right. But yeah, I guess they... Um, they all turned it down, and uh, it ended up going to Bruce Willis, who was very popular at the time on a show that I liked called Moonlighting. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of it. There he is. <laughs> you just can be more obvious. <laughs> I'm making a call. There's no phone. Uh... Yeah, they they offered the role of uh, Hans Gruber in this to Sam Neill, Event Horizon's own Sam Neill, originally. Nice. But he turned it, it down, uh, too. That's weird, because I, mean, I don't know what he did. Or I guess Dead Calm was probably what he did right before this that I can think of. Yeah, I think so. And um, I know he was in... Uh, in the Mouth of Madness. Yeah. But he was in a movie called... Which was later, I think. The Good Wife, I think, uh, the year that this came out. He played like a supporting role in that. Hmm. They this was Alan a lot of people don't realize this is Alan Rickman's first movie. I think he was forty years old when it came out. Yeah. They found him playing Valma Valmont in uh a stage production of Dangerous Liaisons. Which is pretty crazy, but uh, obviously he had a uh, very good career, you know, uh off of the back of this. I think uh, before, like, he actually, I think he was someone who, like, wasn't even involved in, like, theater and, like, at a certain point in his life. He's like, I just want to be an actor. I'm not going to be satisfied if I don't try it, that sort of thing. Yeah. Because I don't think someone of, like, you know, Alan Rickman's talent would be, like, like lingering around for 20 years. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this. I don't know if I if I think. I, I, I feel like my first instinct is that it'd be a lot harder today to break into films in your 40s uh, than it was back in the 80s. But I can think of at least two two um, examples, obviously Alan Rickman being one and Morgan Freeman being the other. Yeah, but I mean, Morgan Freeman was trying for a long time before, but yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah, he, yeah, he worked for sure um, up until he, he finally got his breakout role. But yeah, he was, I think he was in his 50s. The great Bonnie Bedelia. Yeah, I don't know of anything she's in besides this. Uh, she she did some stuff on TV, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that she was in um, the dark or the uh, Dead Zone, the uh, the uh, Christopher Walken the movie? one. Yeah, oh, yeah, I don't remember that too well. But I think she played his girlfriend. That. Um, Ended up, uh, you know, things didn't work out because of his accident. That that makes sense. I I really like that book. I haven't read that book in a long time. I should read that again. Very good book. She's uh, her. uh, Some people might not know that her nephew is uh, Macaulay Culkin. Oh, I didn't know that. Yep. Macaulay and uh, Kieran and Rory Culkin are her nephews. Her her brother is uh, Kit Culkin, their dad. I got you. And she got married to Bonnie Bedelia. 
Bobby Benilla. Oh, fuck. I Bobby, Bobby Benilla of the Pittsburgh Pirates. <laughs> yeah, yes. That's where I was trying to get to, but I couldn't <laughs> quite get <laughs> Uh, let's see. I'm looking up her filmography now. I know she was in a lot of stuff, but stuff that you know I didn't. Isn't that lady at the door from something too? Uh oh yeah, she was on Moonlighting. She was. I think she was the uh, the um, receptionist on that show. That's funny. I didn't know that. I, I I thought I saw her in something else. Oh yeah, that's right. She was in Needful Things. <laughs> Do you think she said, uh, hey, Bruce, put a good word for me. I want that part in that big movie you're in. <laughs> oh. yeah, yeah, I don't know. I think the dead zone, going back to that, which uh, makes no sense. I think I'm wrong. Uh, that, that's almost like the perfect like. That's almost like the perfect blend of Stephen King and Bachman. Yeah, I agree. That's a good book. Because there's a lot of like the backstory kind of stuff that Stephen King, you know, like how he's like, uh, how he works for that guy who lets him tutor his son and to get back on his feet and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like that, that really kind of weird premise, like a Richard Bachman type book, you know, where it's like, oh, he can see this guy's going to blow up the world in nuclear war. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've heard Stephen King say that it was ba- it's one of the only books that he's actually plotted out, um, you know, from beginning to end before he started writing it. But he really liked the idea of basically, uh, like, if you could kill Hitler, you know, in, let's say, like 1937 or 1936 before... Uh, you know, the war broke out, gotcha. would you do it? Oh, here's this uh <clears throat> this this part, which I like. Yep. What I like is how he jumps over the counter. I don't know why everything about that always makes me like I'm like, oh, that's funny. He's like this like technical guy. He just like jumps and casually just kicks the guy in the fucking <laughs> chest. Yeah, he's got it going on. I like how they have the ominous mu- music for the uh German guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the book they were all German. Um, obviously in the movie there, some of them are German, some of them are, you know, other European strains. Some are really German. Yeah. Although all the German... Story here. This, is, this is a fictional device right here. Yeah. Looks like a hockey puck. <clears throat> Explodes into flash and then I assume paralyzes him? That's kind of what it looks no, like. Yeah, I don't think so. I think he killed him because it looks like there was like red splotches. So I don't understand the entire purpose of the grenade because he turned the corner and saw the guy, his back was to him. Couldn't he have just as easily popped out and shot him? Yeah, you would think so. A lot of the German that they speak that they speak in this movie is complete gibberish. Yeah, I think the whole German language is gibberish myself, Mark. <laughs> Some people may not know. Uh, that I I've studied German. Uh, Mike has studied Russian. I assume in preparation of their in, imminent takeover. I'd like to uh, I'd like to go to Germany like for Oktoberfest. I should learn this. So it's a, it, it's an interesting sounding language. I know a lot of people say it like sounds like you're always yelling or whatever, but I don't really think it sounds like that. It's just like an interesting sound to it. A lot of it is very close to English. It's uh, it's one yeah of the- for sure. It's one of the languages that English was based on, and it's it's an easier language to learn because at least I find because of that. Yeah, yeah, I've seen a lot of the the words are very similar. You could see you could kind of just tell what the word means by the way it you know sounds. Or mm-hmm. the, yeah, even if the spelling's off when you say it, the way that they say it, you know, uh, with the accent and the you know the different words and stuff, it's it you know, like f- for instance, 
uh, Volkswagen is spelled like that, but in German, um, V's are F's and W's are like pronounced like F's and W's are pronounced like V's. So in German, they would say Volkswagen and it means family wagon, family car. And when you say it like that, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense. I like how like uh, there's like a completely guy dedicated to manning like the reception desk, mm-hmm. like the German crew. You can tell they just have like way too many people. At one point, they're like, "What, what am I gonna do?" Uh, receptionist. <laughs> there's just the the people that were the latest to uh, to the plan. Like he came in the meeting yeah. uh, real late, so he got the shit oh, yeah. job. And what's interesting is I wonder in this. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Die Hard with a Vengeance, the only other good Die Hard movie. Yes, I have. Like, you know how, like, half the crew in that, like, know that they're actually, like, thieves instead of terrorists? I can't remember in this if any of them are actually, like, legit, like, terrorists, or if they're, I think they're all just thieves in this one. I believe so, yeah. In the book, they're terrorists, and I know in the original script of this movie, they were going to be terrorists. And basically, John McTiernan, who passed on this movie twice before finally directing it, one of his big, um, one of his big points of contention is that ter- there's nothing fun about terrorists. He's like, you know, <laughs> he goes, it's not, you know, this movie is not good. It's going to be way too dark. And I don't want to make a movie this dark if they're all terrorists. So he basically um, kind of, you know, engineered them into changing the, them into uh, robbers who are posing as terrorists. Yeah, that makes more sense. In the book, too, um, since it was a sequel to the, the Detective, and the Detective was published 13 years prior, um, the uh, Sinatra's character, you know, was retired. Joe Leland was retired when this book came out, and he was going to see his daughter instead of his wife. So that was gotcha. that was one of the few changes they made, where they made him younger, and they made um, they made it his uh, his wife instead of his daughter. I like, I like this part a lot, where he's like his very carefully trying to like you know like go over like the phone line and like you know make it so like i don't know if like, the calls are all busy or something mm-hmm. his brother just chops them off the chainsaw <laughs> and it's equally effective so it's yeah. like why would you even bother like that's cl- clearly another example of like they need an extra guy like oh we need an electrician in our robbery gang too right we He's need like, oh I- <laughs> we need an electrician or a chainsaw yeah i'll bypass the alarms like yeah you do that <laughs> What's that? You took five seconds too long? Get out the chainsaw. It's no different. <laughs> Yo, know, I would not be surprised one bit if this scene from The Dark Knight was like completely ripped off from this. Ooh. Where the Joker comes out. Yeah. Just the way Alan Rippin's standing, like that's almost the exact same way. You see him from the back, you know, like when you first really kind of see him, he's just, you know, kind of like, well, actually, that's not true because in that scene, but you see him from the back at first and then they come out and just start shooting. Yeah. And honestly, I think McLean does the exact same thing that Batman does. Because doesn't Christian Bale go into like a private room or like he goes like into a ventilation type duct? Yeah, I think he goes into yeah he goes into a private. I think it was room. a hidden like panic room he had or something like that. Yeah, and then he turns into Batman and then he crashes through the window. Yeah, so uh, that ripped us off. I never thought about that, but yeah, I think you're right. Look at this. It's <laughs> a hell of a Christmas party. Look at those. <laughs> I mean, that's really the best reaction you can say. Yeah. You know? it's, it's, not, it's not adding any like emotion to it. Just look at those. <laughs> You're not describing. Oh. You know, hurt anyone's feeling with that. 
I, I, do they ever address that later? The the janitor that's just walking around. No, I don't think so. <laughs> so the whole time we basically just have to kind of assume that a janitor is just like kind of like with his headphones on, you know, not hearing gunshots. Yeah, that old trope where um, he's listening to music too loud and can't hear all the chaos going on around him. Yeah, this uh, now, like I said, a lot of the building was under construction as you know as we can kind of see here um but there were uh there were areas where of the building that were finished where people were working um and they the, i guess the film crew had to continually apologize for the noise of gunshots <laughs> to the people below them because <laughs> they made apparently they made these guns very loud yeah, you can definitely tell like this and the movie Heat especially. The movie Heat is like so insanely loud. Like I think it's the only movie that really conveys what it actually sounds like to sound to be in a gunfight. Mm-hmm. And this, or I guess you could say Pratt Ryan's pretty good at that too. Yeah, yeah. The, especially that opening scene. But yeah, they McTiernan really wanted uh the sound to be to be uh ramped up so that it, it added more realism. Now let me ask you a question is cuz you're a gun guy and I'm not as much of a gun guy. These guns that they're using would they be effective in this like in situations like this? Are they uh Yeah, I'd- they're uh they're, they're and cock uh knives, which actually this is this might be the first movie or one of the first ones where they be like really prevalent. They're like in almost every movie. Mm-hmm. Um they're basically 9 millimeters, but you know the longer barrel provides extra, you know, um Acceleration, so the bullets are going even faster. Okay, they're they're actually pretty well known to be used by like just counterterrorism units in general. I think the FBI's hostage, hostage rescue team. The last I had like looked into them or whatever, been interested in it. They did have MB5s. Okay, because I know and they're in the movie the uh, the Matrix quite a bit too. The uh, ones that uh, Morpheus has are actually MB5Ks. They're a shortened barrel. They're a little bit smaller. Okay. Yeah, I know. And then the. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just gonna say I know that um, that uh, sometimes they'll use uh, you know like certain types of machine guns and stuff like that in movies, and uh, you know I've heard people say uh, that that's dumb for them to use this type of gun in this type of situation yeah. because they're not that makes, effective. I mean, it's kind of a weird weapon just because they're kind of expensive. Right. Yeah, they're definitely something that you use. And um, there's actually quite a few interesting guns in this movie. And my favorite one is the one that Hans Gruber has. Okay. But uh, Bruce Willis uh, actually carries a Beretta 92F. Um, it's a, a gun that was used by the Army at that point. They had moved from the 1911 to that. And so, like, Bruce Willis is actually kind of like his character is known for carrying that gun. So it's almost like the gun's a character, too. Like, in every movie, I'm pretty sure he has a Beretta 92. Yeah. Now, is that the type of gun that uh, a police officer would carry around this time or could carry? It's possible. I mean, a lot of them were moving to like the double stack nine millimeters. I mm-hmm. mean, some of them at this point, a lot of them still had revolvers. Uh, the FBI was on a Smith and Wesson at this point, I believe. And then the Smith and Wesson, like they had a whole line that was like you know adopted by the FBI, and then they went to um, the FBI. Actually, w- went through quite a few firearms at a certain point. We had nine millimeter was pretty popular amongst the military and even the FBI at this point. A few years later, they had the heavy, heavier calibers, which is um, you'd be a result of like a famous shootout. But then they actually have only recently gone back to the nine millimeter. Yeah, because nine, you know, uh, nine millimeters. It, it surprises me uh, to hear that because of you know it's a 
famously smaller uh, caliber gun. Um, but uh, I guess it the way it's designed, it, it doesn't it, uh, have like similar stopping power to some other types of guns that are higher calibers. Yeah, a big issue with the nine millimeter in the military is that the uh, due to the I think it's uh, the Hague or the Geneva Convention, they're only allowed to use ball ammunition. Okay. And ball ammunition, like it doesn't expand or anything like that. But like the most modern ammunition, the reason they switched back from the forty caliber to the nine millimeter at least is because the ammunition has advanced so much. Like the average nine millimeter bullet now will expand to like half an inch, which is you know actually bigger than a forty caliber. So. Okay. I mean, even then, back then, I mean, it's a lot of it's like, you know, a lot of like egos involved. Like, oh, I carry a bigger caliber. So people think like they're more masculine or something. But yeah, yeah I think Europe basically never left that millimeter. That was I think that was one of those things like in, um, you know, like Dirty Harry with the 44 Magnum. I think, yeah, for sure. I think that was kind of the point of that one. Which is kind of funny because even in that, the, the first movie, he's actually uh, he, the 44 Magnum was so popular that they couldn't get a hold of one. Mm hmm. So he's 41 Magnum. Okay. Rickman is so good in this, uh, in this role. I, it's, I, I, you know, it's, it's a, it's a revelation of a performance for your first, uh, on-screen role, but he absolutely nails the quiet sinisterness of Hans Gruber. Yeah. Especially, you know, like, Combined with a certain type of sophistication, yeah, so you can definitely tell he's a gentleman. And I was going to point that out in a couple of scenes ago. Um, when he's walking through looking for Nakatomi, he sees several other Japanese guys, but he's kind of too rude to say like, "Hey, you're Japanese, are you Nakatomi?" <laughs> right. Whereas, like another person, until he actually stands up, you can tell right now that. Um that he really doesn't have a plan of what uh what he's doing he's just basically gathering intel which is another um another thing that i like about this movie is he doesn't just go barreling in or anything he does what a good police officer would do if he was if he was found if he found himself in this situation he gets as much information as humanly possible to assess the threat and then you know is going to decide how he wants to proceed from there. Yeah, that's for sure. Like, it's kind of interesting. You know, like, uh, he's actually like pretty, even though it's Bruce Willis, he's actually pretty smart in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's another, Hans Gruber's guy, and I love that guy. It's a, uh, HK, Heckler and Koch, they make the, the same, you know, the HK, uh, B5, same manufacturer. Mm -hmm. Um, they make, it's called the MP, or it's a P7. And it's like a really interesting mechanism in order to even shoot the, the uh the grip which not many people know but it's it's a really cool little gun and that's like probably something like a more it's like it's actually the perfect one for him because he's like kind of like a sophisticated type who's not really expected to shoot it out with anyone right yeah you can he's he has <clears throat> the weapon for um you know intimidation and obviously in situations like this if he has to use it but it's not, you know, he's not looking to get into some huge firefight. See, what's kind of interesting here is, like, the way he bets him, like, you know, because the one guy thinks he's going to shoot him, the other one doesn't. Mm -hmm. So they probably, that was probably part of the plan ahead of time, you know? Like, they thought, like, oh, the one guy's like, oh, there's no way he's actually going to do it. But, like, 
Hans probably realized that in order to like, really show they were serious, he had to just murder someone, you know, because mm-hmm. you can't pretend to be terrorists without killing at least one person. Yep. Which, you know, if you think about it, it's really even more fucked up because, like, a terrorist, like, as bad as they are, they have, like, you know, they're idealists. They actually believe in what they're doing, but he just is in it for the money. So he's like, yeah, we have to kill people. We have to kill people. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's even more heartless in a way because uh, because it's, you know, it all it's all for money. Yeah, he, he literally doesn't care about anything but the money. It's a huge amount. It's kind of funny because this is another 80s trope is, like, the what he's really after are the bearer bonds. Mm-hmm. It's like every like eighties movie, like oh, we got bearer bonds. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for people that don't know, bearer bonds are basically uh, bonds that belong to whoever bears them. <laughs> if and they're you... basically the best way to transfer giant sums of cash with you know being relatively anonymous. Yep. Before cryptocurrency or whatever, I guess I don't understand cryptocurrency, so. It's it's interesting, but not the time to discuss uh, cryptocurrency. There's a lot of cryptocurrency podcasts. I I bet there are. I don't know why there'd be more than one, but I'm sure there's plenty. <laughs> uh, this uh, the ill-fated um, scientist nerd guy is another one <laughs> of my favorite characters in this movie. You know, it's funny. There are a lot of there are a lot of characters that either end up being uh, cliches or even were nece- like kind of cliches at the time. But the way that they, you know, the performances of them and everything, the way they, uh, the way they're integrated in the story and the way they're portrayed, it makes them unique enough to where it doesn't feel like a cliche. Yeah, they're they're you know they're good acting in the whole movie. See, I would, I would, I would say the only thing that really can say that this is a Christmas movie is all the different songs that are on the soundtrack, mm-hmm. like Hollis Queens, and later when he's in the exact same room and the vault opens, you hear like the Ode to Joy. Yep. Yeah, if uh, I can see why some people think it's a Christmas movie, um, if you take the Christmas element out of this movie, I think it's still the same movie though. And that's, oh yeah, for sure. I think that's probably the biggest reason that I like. And you know, there are other movies that people like really think are. See, everyone debates this one, but I think, uh, like for instance, Home Alone, I think is uh, a much more interesting debate because if you, oh, I think that I think that's definitely a Christmas movie. But if you take the Christmas element out of that movie, it's still the same movie. Not really, because they're not traveling to the uh, to France in the first place for a Christmas trip. He's well, not going to the church because it's Christmas, and he's not really missing his family so much because of the holiday. That's, I guess, that's probably true. Because I mean, they could be traveling for whatever, just summer vacation or something like that. But the Christmas holiday makes it hard for them to get a flight, and uh, you yeah, know, it's a big factor in a and, lot of stuff, and hard to get a hold of any neighbors or anything like that. So and yeah, every, I guess. And so that's why the wet bandits are there in the first place. Yeah, that's true. I like the conceit at the beginning of the movie to get him to get his shoes off with the uh, the airplane thing. Yeah, I wonder how many people actually do do that airplane thing. Apparently, I don't fly very much. I I, I don't like flying. Um, it, I I'm afraid of it, and uh, and it bothers me. I have flown before though, but um, I'm surprised to hear that because I know you really don't care for that at all. 
No, I don't. But I have, but I have flown uh, a few different times. Um, but uh, according to Bill Burr, I guess there's a lot of people that take their shoes and socks off on the plane, and he finds it disgusting. Yeah, it's pretty gross. This uh, normal gray shirt that this guy's wearing uh, will soon become uh, an iconic gray shirt. It'll be another. See, I wonder that. I bet you can make uh, an ornament of that, but I don't know. Put that on their tree. I've seen people. um, I've seen people wear. Now, a lot of people, I guess, just probably make it because it's all it is is red paint. um, You know, when you get down to it. But I've seen a lot of people come to holiday parties wearing a, a gray sweater. Yeah, I would do it with the ho ho ho. Now I've got a machine gun part though. <laughs> no, that I mean I've seen them do it, like paint that on there. Oh, I'm sure, but I I'm I'm just saying I wouldn't do that this this day and age. <laughs> That's true. You get tackled immediately. So like they have it all figured out. They're like, oh, there's rules, but you know, John McClane doesn't play without rules. <laughs> yep. Oh, this is, you know, like, and this is another thing too, is I like, um, you know, some of these fight scenes, they're brutal They're I mean, they're not, they don't look hugely choreographed. They don't look, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's for sure. You know, they don't, they, they, you can, they almost don't, they look real. They don't look necessarily filmed, you know? <laughs> yeah. And with Bruce Willis's history, maybe they're not. <laughs> All right. Every time Bruce gets into a fight with someone. <laughs> we'll come up with the story, you know, and backwards from there. Right. Remember when, remember when that delivery guy came and he kicked him down the stairs? That's one of the brothers. <laughs> oh. Red Castle. This might be uh, controversial, but I really liked it when terrorists were the villains in movies. Yeah, me too. It, like again, True Lies. It was fun in there. You know, it's funny too. This, like, in this era, um, this was kind of the very tail end of um, of Russians being the default bad guys in in uh, in almost every action movie. Yeah, that's true. And there were also like a lot of terrorist act- activities during the eighties too. So I'm surprised if it was. Maybe that's part of why they changed it to thieves. Oh, terrorists. Right. Yeah, like, yeah, late 70s and the 80s. Yeah, it was a big time of uh, terrorist activity. You like the 80s, right, Mark? (laughs) It's the 80s. (laughs) I had Ben listen to to our podcast, and he, uh, he loved it. Loves all the shout outs. (laughs) <laughs> sometimes in our commentaries and podcasts for you know for you guys listening out there we just do inside jokes that there's no way that you can that you can know why he goes through the whole like charade of like coming with like the santa claus suit and stuff that makes no sense yeah i don't know uh do you think elevator operators watch movies like this and just go insane Maybe I don't know. We we I've been at Otis for ten fucking years, and we've never had our elevator was able to be stopped by a screwdriver. <laughs> we uh, speaking of Ben, his old neighbor Mike, 
uh, I don't know if he still does this or not anymore, but he was an uh, inspector for elevators. Um, and, uh, you know, he would do safety, he'd go around to different elevators and do safety inspections on them. I asked him one time about, uh, what he hates most about the way elevators are portrayed in the movies. And he said, whenever you see an elevator fall, like it's free falling, <laughs> he goes, it's impossible. He's like, it's impossible for that to happen. And he, he like he explained to me about uh, you know the um, <laughs> the um, he explained to me about the um, the cables and stuff and how impossible they were to break and even if they did break how there are, uh, there are manual brakes on um, each uh, each thing each side that would prevent it from falling like that. Hmm. I think that happened in Chicago recently. Like it fell like eighty stories or some insane amount like that. Really? Yeah, but I don't think I think it, it did actually like a manual like thing stopped it eventually. I yeah, I haven't heard that story. We should have got a mic on the podcast, huh? Right. We'll talk about <laughs> next time we do uh next time we do our uh our world disaster podcast, <laughs> we can we can get him on there. <laughs> We'll get a bridge guy to talk about that uh, that bridge that uh, collapsed in the eighties in uh, Oklahoma City in that hotel. And we'll get a uh, like a heating and cooling person to give us a loader on the ducks. Oh yeah, I know Dude, you. This must drive them insane too. I know you hate this this the uh, the ventilation shaft thing. Yeah, it's dumb. He went from an elevator to a ventilation shaft, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I think there's a part coming up here, I think. It's been a long time since I've seen this film, so it's, uh, but I think when he falls, I think that's coming up soon. Maybe not. You think Mike was at home going, don't worry, it'll catch him. (laughs) Well, when it comes up, I'll let you know, because I've got a, uh, I got a little tidbit about that. Man, you can tell they really were uh, working on... Uh, <laughs> I, right. lo- I love that he takes a second to look at it, even in this situation. Ooh, look at those. <laughs> what the hell kind of layout is there of this floor right here? I don't know. He came out of an elevator, he jumped like up through a window, and then he went down through like a fucking ladder on the floor? Yeah. Maybe maybe Sony uh was building a bunch of secret rooms and passageways into their <laughs> corporate offices. For the magician division. Right. No, they so they can uh because they knew that uh one day they uh someone would find out all the sexual harassment they've been up to. <laughs> Hide <Those> escape rooms. <laughs> If it was like a billionaire, I'd put all sorts of like secret doors. It'd be sweet. Mm-hmm. Maybe like H.H. Holmes, eat your heart out. I actually have always wanted a uh, a house with secret passageways in it. I just thought it would be cool. I think a teller from Penn and Teller has that in his house. That, w- that would not surprise me at all. Oh, this, okay. this uh, view of the city is not real. It's a painting curses yeah that's a uh it's i guess it's kind of famous they still own it and they still use it sometimes but uh it was one of the most um 
it was one of the most expensive paintings they ever commissioned and and it was one of the um the most intricate because I don't know exactly how they did this. I guess maybe like tiny holes where they put in regular lights and stuff, but um but you know they can have, like they had it they made it so that the lights could kind of come on and off and twinkle a little bit and it can I guess it can go from night to day as well. Huh. I don't know exactly how they did this with this painting, but uh but there there must be like I said some kind of so like some kind of light bright shit behind that. <laughs> I got the 911 operators rolling their eyes. Yeah. Here's another uh, interesting guy in this. This is a um shit, what's it's a Steyer Aug. And that, what's interesting is that that's an Austrian gun. The other ones were in fact German, so they actually like make sense like location-wise. Mhm. <laughs> They're just insistent that he's making this off. You know what's so weird too is um that the nine one one operators have a tiny little Christmas tree on their, yeah. on their thing. Like that's not that's not a profession where I would assume that they'd be festive around their office. <laughs> I'm sorry, sure, sir, you've been uh, shot by your crazy uncle who came over for Christmas. Oh, look at the lights. <laughs> Or that just implies that they're just so detached from like the nine one one part of it that they're like, yeah, it's like any other job. Maybe. There's a uh, uh, my beloved uh, Carl Winslow. Yep, Reginald Bell Johnson. Uh, great performance. I like how the guy calls him out, but the guy is equally, at least equally fat to Reginald Bell Johnson. Yeah. He's like, oh, you eat a bunch of Twinkies, huh? He's like, you're you're just as fat as I am. Yeah, exactly. Maybe Police more. Officer, I walk a lot. We just stand here at this fucking counter all day. The only way this movie could be any better is if it was uh, Dante and Randall behind the counter. <laughs> just somehow. <laughs> wrong city, wrong decade, but just somehow there. Make your own milkshake was 99 cents back then? Damn. Wow. Make your own milkshake? Yeah, I just realized, what the fuck does that mean? That's weird. Did so- they have, like, you could easily get, oh, here's the bill. It was like a oh look at those gas prices though. Oh yeah. It was like it was like a you'd have like your own milk milkshake machine like at like a you know like a fast food place. Oh, I guess. Or Dairy maybe. Queen. Yeah. It seems like it'd be. It seems like a pretty cheap pricing. <laughs> it's like a make your own uh, pizza pie from Seinfeld. Yeah. Or a make your own uh, slush order. Right. I like how my kids like to put like five or more different flavors in like their Slurpee. It's like you're really just ruining it right now. Yeah, I don't like that either. I've never, I don't put more than one. I guess I'm boring. I find it odd that the New York detective is familiar enough with these weapons to be able to use them like immediately, though. Yeah, that's probably a slight plot hole. Even, uh, yeah, because I would think that even like SWAT and stuff like that wouldn't necessarily be using these, not not at that time. Yeah, SWAT actually does use those extensively, so I think it was probably after this. So, like, this is one of those things where people first saw, like, oh, that looks cool, you know, or, mm-hmm. or that was in Die Hard. And, yeah, he's not, a, like, obviously he's a detective, so he was not part of the SWAT team. I just remember when I was a kid being so, like this. It's just an exciting film. 
Yeah, it's, there's really very slow, few slow moments. Yeah, and what and what is and even those are like you know the ones that are like action like slow or like you know tense. Mm-hmm. I suppose I guess that poster of the naked uh, of the naked girl is <laughs> is to uh, is to give us um, to give us uh, a sense of place so we know where we where we're at as he's crawling through all yes. these different places. Was that a uh, playment of the year, Victoria Silverstep? I don't know. I think maybe a little early for her. I would, yeah, that probably wouldn't be uh, legal. Yeah, yeah, she'd, she'd probably like fourteen at the time. Actually, I don't know. She's probably younger than that. Now that I think about it, could be yeah. Because this was eighty-eight. <laughs> And I don't know when she was playmate of the year, but I think uh, basketball came out in what ninety eight. Yeah. So yeah. I don't think she was in her thirties. No. It's funny his brother's dead, but that other guy could easily just be his brother. Yeah, really, he could. Do you think they have like a brief conversation? Like you're like a brother to me. <laughs> It would be like in Beer Fest where uh, where it's uh, yeah. landfill, but it's just... <laughs> yeah, Beer Fest would be a good one to do, for sure. I yeah, love that movie. Too. Yeah, it's, I think I like it most of any of the other ones. Yeah, this part where he falls, um, this was not supposed to happen. Oh, that sounds tragic. Well... What happened was is um and I guess I'm you know, I'm sure he was fine, but um the uh the stunt man when he releases here was supposed to catch um the uh he was supposed to catch um the side, I think, or something like that, or one of the one of the the um the ventilation things and swing into it. And I guess he missed it by a lot. <laughs> oh no. But uh but the shot, you know, looked cool, so they kept it in. <laughs> I assume he didn't die, since they didn't mention that he died. He probably didn't die, people. <laughs> I'm like, isn't there like an Italian horror movie, like the Jalalo? What are they called? The Jalalo or something like that? What? Uh, um, I'm not sure. You're talking about like a genre of Italian horror movie? Yeah. Oh, um, I know what you're talking about. The uh, the really gory ones. Yeah, but isn't there one where like someone actually did, you were telling me, I thought, fell through like a, like a sky, you know, like a skylight at a mall and died? Yeah, that, that's they a... They just incorporated it into the movie? Yep, that's a, a Dario Argentino movie. Oh, no. Yeah, he... Uh... Like, um, I guess that used to happen a lot. Like, there were people that died in Ben-Hur. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I knew about that. But uh, I'm trying to think of the name of that movie now. Um, but yeah, this guy, they, um, he, uh, they didn't use a stunt double for some reason. I don't know why. Um, and uh, he, uh, like, he slipped. He fell through uh, this, um, like, uh, skylight thing. And died, but they kept it Jeez. in the movie. And then you say they had like a whole backstory to it too. Yeah, I'm trying to remember all of it because that was uh, 
Yeah, that was way like probably um when uh when I was friends with Colin in um Yeah, I know you guys were in the early nineties, yeah. That was something I read about then. Hey, uh, is this uh, Asia Argentino uh, related to this Dario Argentino guy? Who? Uh, Asia Argentino. I don't know who that is. Oh, never mind. <laughs> is that a joke that I'm not kidding? No, I thought that was her name. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, I uh, that um, uh, Giada. Uh, I think that's her name. She's a a um. Or no, I'm thinking of De Laurentiis. Dino De Laurentiis. Um, yeah, that's another one. Italian horror director. But um, let's see. Maybe oh, I'm thinking of Argento. Asia Argento. Not the same thing, right? Yeah. No. No. You. Yeah. No. That. That's. That's right. Yeah. Dario Argento. Yeah. And so that's his daughter. I don't know if if it is or not, but. But, uh, um, yeah, it says father of Dario Argento. There you go. You know, she did, right? No, no, I haven't she heard raped of her. A, she raped a guy. She did? Yeah. Some seventh year old kid she uh, had intercourse with. Wow. And then, uh, Anthony Bourdain, her boyfriend, died by hanging. Oh, yeah, the Hollywood hangman. Hollywood Hangman strikes again. Yeah, I knew that. I knew that about Bourdain. I didn't realize he was dating her. I know that we do an entertainment podcast, but I don't really keep up on celebrity news. I try to keep up on. Uh, <laughs> I try to keep up on um, on movie news and stuff like that, but I just I don't keep up with celebrities. So you know, we also do a whole podcast on the. Uh... Hollywood Hangman. Oh, yeah. I like his reference there. Like, was this guy, Stevie Wonder? You could never put that in a movie these days. Yeah. What is he, blind like Stevie? <laughs> yeah, I think sometime in the new year we'll do a uh, we'll do a movie conspiracy theory one, and we'll do the Hollywood Hangman. We can go through your um, your top dog. Uh, your top, that's what it's called, right? Top dog? Yep. There's a, there's a lot in that top dog one. There's a few other ones too that are interesting. This guy looks like Huey Lewis to me. Yeah, he kind of does. <laughs> really a lot. Another good thing about this movie is the way that and you know how um how action movies should be structured anyway. They're not always now, but how they should be where um uh, everything just kind of uh, escalates. You know what I mean? Where um, you can see, like at the very beginning, you know, he's it's a tense situation because he's going to see his wife and they're um, they're having problems. And then um, you know the uh, terrorists slash robbers come in, and then someone gets killed, and then just everything keeps piling up and up and up until we reach the climax. Do you think these guys might all be brothers? I don't know. It could be they look like it. They're all. So he's really, he really should be that upset. He's got a lot more. They're all. They're all sporting a, you know very fashionable eighties mullets. 
someone said, and I, I think I agree with this, that um, the more uh, <clears throat> the more Bruce Willis loses his uh, hair, the um, <laughs> just the uh, the more indestructible he gets as a character, and uh, the worse the films get. <laughs> oh, that's not true. Uh, Unbreakable, he's bald or anything in that. Well, I mean the Die Hard films in particular. Oh yeah, for sure. But um, uh, I saw the one with Justin Long and Timothy Elephant. Not good. Yeah, yeah. I saw um, I saw the last one. I hope. Um, but I, no, I saw the uh, <laughs> I, I saw the the latest one they did um, in the theater. I was I can't remember what I was doing, but basically I had two hours to kill. Oh, this scene right here where he shoots him through the uh, table. I guess he suffered permanent hearing loss because of that. Oh, I wouldn't be shocked. It's very loud. Yeah, I guess. And he's... the they do that in the crow too. Yep. But um, yeah, I had two hours to kill for some reason. I don't remember why. And it was the next movie playing, so I, I think it was Live Free or Die Hard. I think that was the last one they did. The one takes place mostly yeah, in Russia. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, yeah. It was so bad. Yeah, it didn't sound any type of good to me. I'm pretty sure I've seen all of them. That I've seen all the the diehards for whatever reason. I've seen that that one. You've seen the last one. The second one is okay. I mean, the second one's a very stock standard sequel where it's yeah, just it could the, be the exact same movie. This first one, really, yeah, yeah, it's just the exact same movie only in an airport instead of uh, in a building. But uh, yeah, the uh, the other one, like you said, I think is it um, with a vengeance. With a vengeance, yeah, that with Samuel L. Jackson, right? Yeah, yeah, I really like that one. Yep, that one's that one's. I agree. That's beside the, that one oh, and this music's one. Music's too loud. <laughs> Such an easy cliche. Yeah, I like uh, I like with a vengeance a lot. That's pretty good. And Jeremy Irons is like you know worthy like character to be mm-hmm. related to uh, Alan Rickman's uh, Hans Gruber. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Simon says. Every time I watch that movie, I get to the point where they have like that riddle. I'm like, oh, I got to re remember how to solve this one. The one <laughs> at the you know, with the water jugs. Yeah. Yep. Oh, the media is coming in. That's never a good sign. It's just going to be a bunch of fake news. <laughs> They're going to somehow blame this Donald Trump. <laughs> 80s businessman Donald Trump allowed uh, right. <clears throat> allowed uh, Yakanama to buy this uh this building, if it had been not, a Trump tower. <laughs> Could you imagine? You know, okay, here's something. Um, back in this period of time, Donald Trump used to allow people to shoot at his properties and stuff like that, as long as he could be given a uh, cameo in the movie. That's yeah, that's, that's funny, because you mentioned Home Alone earlier, and that's why he was in Home Alone, too. Yeah, exactly. Imagine if they had decided to shoot this at Trump Tower. <laughs> and he played the owner, and then Alan Rickman just shoots him in the head. I'm sure he wouldn't allow that, but yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> oh. Who do you think would be as a cameo? Who would Donald Trump be as a cameo in this? Yeah, just like a brief cameo. Mm, He'd be I, the janitor. <laughs> you, you know who he could have been? He could have been the guy in the airplane that tells him how to take his socks yeah, that's off. That's true. That's true. 
But no, he'd have to be uh, he'd have to be someone in the tower itself, I think. Oh yeah, that's true. Well, he plays himself in um, in Home Alone, Home Alone too. He'd be one of the German brothers, just gleefully like shooting at him. <laughs> that would be hilarious. Oh. Uh... Hmm. They, they, C4. They came prepared. Now they they so I assume uh that from his perspective, because he thinks they're terrorists, that he's thinking they're going to blow up the building as an act of terrorism. I guess. And um, he's not too wrong. Yeah. Not not entirely. They are going to blow something up, just not... They're not looking to pull up the entire building. Right. But, uh, yeah. Ooh, that's... uh, Isn't that a Hindu god? I think it's Shiva, yeah. That's interesting, because they're Japanese. Oh, no, it could be, it could be Buddha, but yeah, I think it's a Shiva. It looks like Shiva. I wonder if that's supposed to be, like, a multi... um. A multi like ethnic or multi faith uh, like area where uh, yeah yeah it could be or if uh, or if the makers of the like the set designer just <laughs> doesn't know the difference between uh, Hindu <laughs> culture and Japanese culture. I'd prefer that to be the case, but <laughs> I don't. Know. Going on the air now. Get Ryan Seacrest out of here. <laughs> uh, he he sort of looks like he could be Ryan Seacrest's dad. Oh, yeah. He kind of looks like Timothy Stack. Yeah, a little bit. Yep. I used to love uh, that parody um, uh, like talk show that he had. A Night Talk with D- Dick Dietrich? Yep. Yep, that was fun. And, like, I, I always thought Timothy Stack was very funny. Although there were a lot of uh, stuff that he did that I thought was terrible too, <laughs> like yeah, I can see that. like stuff that he uh, like I never thought he was bad, but I was like, oh, the writing, like oh, this is a bad project. The writing of this is not that good. Like that son of the beach. I didn't really watch it, but Howard Stern produced it, so he wouldn't shut up about it ever. I watched a few episodes of it. It was okay at times, but. Uh, it was not great a lot of other times. But again, I love Timothy Stack. He was good in it. He was in an episode of The Wonder Years, too. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> People are finally starting to realize what's going on. Both of them individually have been trying to tell everyone. This movie ends up being longer than uh, than you would think. It moves very briskly. Yeah, it's pretty, what is it, like two hours? Yeah, I think a little over two hours, which is not necessarily long now, <clears throat> but somewhat long for the time. A lot of, you know, a lot of movies were <clears throat> right at the 90-minute mark back in the uh, in the 80s. Ah, uh, yeah, that's my preferred length, the shorter the better. 
Just how desperate is he to like immediately call him partner? Right. Oh, speaking of the gunshots in this movie, um, I guess uh, Alan Rickman used to flinch, or I mean, would would flinch every time he fired a, fired a shot in the movie. So McTiernan, yeah, it's really obvious when he shoots a guy. Yeah, and McTiernan had to try to cut away every every time to not get his reaction in the shot. There is definitely something uh, about watching this movie at Christmas, though, that uh, that I can see uh, it being a good tradition for people. Especially people that don't like musicals and things like that. Isn't, isn't the guy the principal from The Breakfast Club? Um, I don't think so. Oh, wait, The Breakfast Club. Um, I was, for some reason I was thinking of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't know, I frequently get, uh, people mixed up though. I always get, uh, William Hurt and John Hurt mixed up. John Hurt's the one in Alien, right? Uh, I think so. I don't know. Oh, the new McLean's wife is so high up. She's second in command. That's pretty good. Yeah, now she's in charge. Yeah, he's absolutely the principal from uh, The Breakfast Club. (gasps) (laughs) Pretty soon we get uh, our first look at Johnson & Johnson. (laughs) The FBI agents. Apparently that was a, uh, a joke that they put in the movie uh, for uh, Reginald Val Johnson's um, uh, sake. Why for his sake? Because I guess cause his last name is Johnson. It's just like... <laughs> I don't... I don't exactly... I don't exactly get why it's funny, but... Right. It's like, oh, their last name is kind of like your last name. Argyle finally figures it out. I mean, if his last, if his name was Reginald Double Johnson, 
then I guess it would be funnier. This, <laughs> this also has another trope that I love about um, 80s movies is whenever anyone's working on a computer, it's uh, like they, they can make the computer do anything. Yeah, that's great. There was a movie. There was a movie uh, for all you younger kids out there, where uh, a John Hughes movie where they used a computer to bring a human woman to life, and everyone just accepted that. Oh yeah, computers could probably do that. And that's weird science. Yeah, I know that was a John Hughes movie. I haven't seen that. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think that takes place in Illinois, too. It's so funny to me. Like, every John Hughes movie, all the kids are rich, but they don't know they're rich. <laughs> because uh, John Hughes was rich when he was growing up, but didn't know he was rich. I didn't know that. As you notice, like, if you notice, they always live in the like nicest suburbs of, uh, of Illinois in these giant houses. <laughs> They've got nice cars. But they never talk about it because they don't know it. And again, more escalation coming up. It's easy to forget, like, just how much destruction happens in this movie. Yeah. Do you have any Christmas tradition movies aside from this, or is this one of them? I usually watch this, um... I, I, not every year, but I usually watch this around uh, Christmas time. Um, <clears throat> in our house, when I was growing up, uh, the big one was a Christmas story, which I, I'm, I, yeah, I'm sure is for a lot of people too. It was one of those things where, when I was a kid, I was like, "Oh, we're the only ones that know about this movie." You know, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like not, not like uh, it was made just for our family, but like. Um, like it wasn't a big hit or anything like that. And it was like, oh, you know, we discovered, uh, you know, this movie that we like. And like and most people didn't seem to like it kind of thing. Um, but it wasn't until I, you know, like got older that I realized, oh, like this became a cult classic for like everyone. Yeah, I'm not a big Christmas movie fan. I'm done with it at this point. I mean, uh, I haven't seen it in uh, several years. I used to like it a lot when I was a kid, but my dad would insist that we watch it every single year and quote, like, you know, we always quoted it and everything. And uh, it just got to be too much. So you're saying it was really kind of just a fad. (laughs) That's right. Yep, it was just a fad in our family. I might show it to my kids, uh, you know, soon, though, because I don't think they've ever seen it. See, I, I watch it, you know, every so often or parts of it. I don't really like it that much. Yeah, I used, like I said, I used to when I was a kid, and it's hard to judge if I actually liked it or if I just liked it because I was a kid, you know, like the Goonies. Yeah, yeah. Like, I I, I can't objectively tell you if the Goonies are, is good or bad. <laughs> because exactly. there's too much nostalgia uh, associated with it. But I'll bet you that if I watched it for the first time when I was like 25 years old, I would I would think it was terrible. 
That's my whole theory on Star Wars that most people dislike it because they thought they liked it when they were younger. That's definitely possible. I don't know how if you're still like uh, watching the uh, Always Sunny episodes, but there's an Always Sunny Christmas episode that's it's hilarious. You got to watch that one. All right, which which one? The only really did one. I care what it's called, but if you tell me the names of whichever ones there are, like uh, I'll be able to figure it out. This guy, the the uh, Asian guy with the long hair, he's like a really like well like used stuntman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen him in other things. Yeah, he's in a lot of other like he's like a stuntman slash actor kind of guy. I think he was in Big Trouble in Little China. No, I want candy. Does that imply they have a movie theater in the uh, building? I don't know. Maybe. That is weird. I've only seen one of those like interior like uh, snack stands open like once or twice. Yeah. I've you know I get the urge every time I pass one that's closed uh, to just smash the glass and take something. <laughs> just to teach them a lesson not even really because I want it or I want to steal it or anything like that just to be like don't put this shit here if you don't if you don't want it stolen it's probably all stale anyways yeah yeah it's probably it's like they have fucking movie meals over there <laughs> they've got uh, they've got Nestle Crunch Bars in there but they're the old um, the old like blue and white packaging you can tell they're from the 70s They're uh, playing Die Hard at the uh, main art theater next week. Oh, okay. For the midnight show. Mm-hmm. That's kind of neat. So I guess they consider it a Christmas movie. Yeah, a friend of mine went out and saw Elf today in the theater. Yeah, I heard that was back in theaters, but I don't know. I'm, I never really got into the movie that much. It's okay. It's not my favorite. I like it, but it's it's another one of those where, you know, I've seen it already. I don't really need to see it a bunch of times. I think I'd rather see Bad Santa again than that. I thought that was pretty funny, the first yeah. one at least. I, think that's, I don't think I saw all the second. I think that's on Netflix right now. Could be. Maybe I should watch that because, uh, again, it's hard to find a bad movie. with. I don't know of any bad movies with Billy Bob Thornton. Hmm. I know he's in the movie The Alamo, which I didn't see, but I think he got pretty bad reviews, so maybe that's the one. But he's probably good in it. Yeah, I like Billy Bob Thornton a lot too. And I don't... I'm trying to think of all the movies I've seen with him in it. But, um, yeah, I can't recall really seeing a bad movie with him. I still can't go, get over the fact that he was good in the Bad News Bears remake. That was like just like set up to be like the worst movie ever. Yep. Yeah, and that's a pretty good movie. I saw um, Bad Santa 2. It's not... Uh, it's not nearly as good as uh, as the first one. Yeah, that makes sense. Bernie Mac was hilarious in that first one. Yeah, Bernie Mac is hilarious in general. Well, let's see. Early in his career, Billy Bob Thornton was in a movie called Chopper Chicks in Zombie Town. <laughs> <laughs> that might not be the best movie in the world. 
Weren't uh, Matthew McConaughey and like uh, Reese Withers? No, Ray Zelliger. And like one of the early, like, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Texas Chainsaw movies? Yes. Yeah. Uh, ooh. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Three? I'm pretty sure Maybe that. Three? I'm pretty sure that Renee Zellweger was. I know Matthew McConaughey was. Um, I think it was four. Okay. Because you used to very prominently display them on the uh, cover at the uh, movie theater, the video store back when I. Yeah. I'll tell you, those. The original Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a really good movie that, um, that, um, yep, you're right, Renee Zellweger wasn't it, and Matthew McConaughey, and it was four, yeah, um, but it's called, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation, in 1995. So, <laughs> Getting back to uh, to Billy Bob Thornton. This woman's been in stuff, too. I yeah. I can't remember exactly what, but I know I've seen her. Um, So, uh, <clears throat> Chopper Chicks in Zombie Town. Here's the, uh, the plot of this movie. <laughs> the film is about an all-female motorcycle game gang named the Cycle Sluts. <laughs> who cruise into the isolated town of Zoraya, looking for a good time. Here, an evil scientist turned mortician. So, uh, he was I guess he was trying to make a living as an evil scientist? But there was not enough money in that, so he became a mortician. <laughs> Has been killing local townspeople with the aid of his long-suffering dwarf assistant. And then, it, and then it has a quote, I assume, from this evil scientist that says, if God wanted you to do normal things, he would have made you look like normal people. <laughs> what? <laughs> and turning them into zombies to use as labor at an abandoned mine. What the hell? How many how many businesses is this guy in? He was an evil scientist. He became a mortician. And now he wants workers in a mine. <laughs> the mine is too radioactive after underground nuclear testing to be mined by living people. Although the scientist later admits that the real reason he's been doing it is not the money, but just because he's plain mean. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of want to see this movie. The well, uh, enjoy. <laughs> the zombies escape after a curious little boy removes the lock to explore the mine, <laughs> becoming the zombie's first victim. So, Jeez. so a curious little boy gets murdered. By the way, um. Even he would have died either way because he's going to explore a, a radioactive mine where <laughs> no true. living people can be. Around this, this point, we meet another one of the parties involved, a busload of blind orphans. What? Who are stranded just on the outskirts of town as their ride breaks down. Luckily, their bus driver always keeps an Uzi on the bus for, quote, sentimental reasons. <laughs> what? Sentimental in what way? 
like with that was the uh that was the uzi that his uh his grandmother used i guess i guess oh with vague memories of life to guide them the zombies eventually find their way back to town and begin devouring live flesh going against the wishes of their leader so they apparently the zombies have a leader and despite, <laughs> and despite some rough treatment from the locals earlier in the film, the cycle sluts, oh, okay, this is the cycle sluts, ride to the rescue and begin killing the zombies using chainsaws, baseball bat, baseball bats, wielding torches, a garrote, and a staple gun. <laughs> in the final scene, the cycle sluts use fresh meat to lure the remaining zombies to the town church where they have, pa- where they have packed with dynamite. A which they have packed with dynamite. They are now aided by the doctor's dwarf, who has decided that there are better lines of work than being a henchman. Right. With all the undead inside and the church sealed up, the timer goes off and the church goes up in flames. Zombies and all. The cycle sluts are rewarded with a sack full of cash and induct the dwarf and several of the blind orphans as honorary what? cycle sluts. What? They then ride out of town with some of the men folk in tow, their new, quote, bitches, and throw the sack <laughs> of money to the wind. Wow. Oh, that sounds like an epic, an epic film. When did it come out? This came out in 1989. I'm surprised you haven't already seen it. 86 minutes. Oh, my. Let's see. Billy Bob Thornton plays Donnie. I don't. Uh, I don't know if that's any kind of. Uh... Oh, it's a trauma movie. Oh, there's a shock. Okay, so it's supposed to be funny. I think. I guess. Oh, that is great. He was also in Going Over o- Overboard in 1988 with Adam Sandler. Yep. Don't know who he plays in that, but yeah, I don't know anyone who's seen that. You know, it's funny because I actually did see this once. <laughs> Colin and I rented it, but uh, oh, that's weird. Dan Pavenmeyer is in it as as Yellow Teeth. Uh, people who have children roughly my daughter's age will uh, probably recognize Dan Pavenmeyer as one of the creators of Phineas and Ferb. Okay, yeah, my kids watch that sometimes. Um, but yeah, there were, like Milton Berle obviously was you know was in it, but Billy Zane was in it, and uh, and um, uh, Billy Bob Thornton as Dave. <laughs> okay. Do you remember him from the movie? No, like I saw it one. It was it was it was horrible. It looked like a home movie. Was Adam Sandler the star? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I don't know exactly, I'd have to look up, uh, you know, the um, the uh, specifics of it. I don't know if he, um, like one of his friends did it or whatever, I don't know. But, yeah, it was terrible. Yeah, until Sling Blade, Billy Bob Thornton was really underused. <laughs> Apparently, uh, 
Yeah, like, and I know he uh, he wrote it and directed it. Basically, he kind of like Billy. That's one one of the things I love about Billy Bob Thornton too, is he realized that he was just in crap. He couldn't get into anything, probably because he didn't look exactly like uh, you know a Hollywood movie star or anything, and just decided to take control of his own career and say, okay, I'm just going to write and direct a film then. <laughs> This guy, so sleazy. Don't want to show uh, Alan Rickman uh, flinching, huh? Right. Rickman. The one thing he couldn't do. Loud noises. <laughs> no, I love Alan Rickman. Have you seen any of those uh, Harry Potter movies that he was in? Uh, no. I know those are popular. I've seen a few of them. With the kids, but I can't remember, you know, all of them. But I love him from several different, you know, fil- other films. Dogma. Yep. The best Kevin Smith film. Big bushy beard. <laughs> A lot of bureaucracy in this movie. <laughs> it's like uh, a big uh, bureaucracy was another uh, big villain in 80s films. For sure. You know, I'm surprised that Reginald Vell Johnson, obviously, you know, he had a pretty good career um, with, uh, you know, his sitcom and everything, uh, Family Matters. But uh, I'm surprised that he didn't get more uh, serious acting roles out of this. Yeah, he was in, um, what do you call it? He was in um, Always Sunny in Philadelphia recently. Oh, okay. A few years ago. Yeah, I'm loving that show. One thing I think I'm going to do now, um, n- probably not for the next podcast, but after the uh, after the new year, one thing I want to do is um, I want to look up some uh, terrible films, like the one that I just read you. <laughs> <laughs> Because there's there's at least one um, that I can think of, uh, director, who just does terrible movies. Um, Michael Bay. Well, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of them, but uh, the guy I'm thinking George of, <laughs> the guy I'm thinking of in particular, is uh, German, I believe. Oh, Yui Boyle. Yep, yep, Uwe Boll. That's right. Yeah, he. Uh, he has got some real terrible movies on his filmography. Yeah, his movies sound so bad I don't even want to see them. Like, there's no redeeming value. Mm-hmm. He's done, uh, you know, he's done a lot of um, uh, video game. Like, he's done a lot of like really terrible video game adaptations. Yeah. But he got pissed because uh, when that movie Rampage came out, he got angry because apparently he has a movie called Rampage. 
and he thinks that they stole uh, the Rampage title from him, even though it's clearly play- based on a video game that predates his movies. Yeah, he didn't realize he thought he came up with a title. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, he uh, he had a big um, a, he had a big rant about that. There's a movie about him. I think it's called "Fuck You" or something like that. I think it's called "Fuck You," the most hated uh, man in Hollywood, or something like that. Yeah, because I think at least for a long time he would actually like make investors money because of the tax write-off. That's mm-hmm. like mostly why it was going. Yep. Oh, it's, I'm sorry. It's called "Fuck You All," the Uwe Boll story. That's fun. I know a few years ago he challenged like journalists who had written bad things about him to like fight him in like a boxing ring. Yep. Yeah, he was boxing critics. I, I think he kicked all their asses too. He apparently he's uh, a, some kind of trained fighter. Oh, poor guy. No more cocaine. That is sad. You know, who says it doesn't snow in Los Angeles? (laughs) Uh. I'm just looking at Reginald Vell Johnson's um, filmography. I don't know why he plays so many cops, but he plays a lot of cops. He does. In uh, the 12 Dog Days Till Christmas in 2014, he was a probation officer. (laughs) It even even says it in the character. It doesn't just say his name. It says probation officer Art Stevenson. (laughs) Oh, wow. He was in The Equalizer. (laughs) <laughs> was he? Not the movie, the TV show. Uh-huh. Was he a cop? I'm assuming he played, let's see, uh, he was in three episodes as different characters in every episode. Oh, that's always weird. Uh, episode titled Lady Cop, episode titled Dead Drop, and episode Sea of Fire. Jeez. He was the Santa thief on an episode of 227. And then obviously Carl Winslow and Perfect Strangers and Family Matters. Right. That was weird in the early days of uh, Family Matters or Perfect Strangers when they like worked at like a junk shop in their building. Mm-hmm. And they just both abruptly shifted careers. Like, yeah, we're at the newspaper now. Yep. I don't get why Hans Gruber himself goes up to investigate it. Like he can't get one of his flunkies. No kidding. The, apparently, uh, John McTiernan hated uh, the uh, American accent that uh, that he did. He filmed he filmed this several times, trying because he uh, he said, "Oh, I can I can still hear the English accent. It does not sound." Yeah, uh, I can hear it too. It's it's not great. And he said, "You know, it's funny because he's he he has such a great voice and he's such a good actor, but." It's like the one, the one defect he has. He can't do an American accent. He should have tried a southern one. It seems like they do the southern one's good. Yeah. 
There are a lot of, uh, I know the English actors think they're great in American accents, but there are not, there are not a lot of them that are in my, in my opinion, like even Hugh Laurie with the, the, um, uh, as house. House. Right. He's, uh, you know, it's decent, but it's, it's just a very generic accent, you know, you, you can tell it's, it's kind of put on a little bit, but he's so good that you just kind of. You know, forget about that. I don't know if you've seen okay, it. Okay, says no way. Like, what are yours? No way. Killing the terrorists? Not one of our guys. <laughs> right? Effectively doing uh, our job? No, not one of us. We're still spreading crack throughout the community. <laughs> what? Well, it's the 80s. That's what they did back then. That's right. But they did this, this whole part was because they wanted to get them in a, because this wasn't in the book, they wanted to get them in a room together uh, before the climax of the film, which makes sense. Apparently, too, in the book, um, and I haven't, I haven't really read the book, I've read a little bit of it, but I haven't read the whole thing, um... It's kind of left ambiguous because he's uh, he's suffered a lot of injuries, and it's left ambiguous as to whether or not he will live. You know, as the book closes. Who Hans or uh, no? Um, the McLean character. McLean character, yeah. But then they did a sequel, though, right? No, the the uh, that that book was a, a sequel to the detective, the first book that he did. I got you. But, uh, yeah, obviously they, but, uh, I guess, uh, Bruce Willis said that he, um, he, uh, played this with like kind of vulnerability and anxiety and stuff like that, um, to, you know, to kind of mirror that in the book that he could be, that he could die, that he might not make it. I like how Hans wastes so little time. Like he really wants these detonators, but he immediately is going to kill him. Like he doesn't couldn't wait like ten minutes. Right. This also shows how he's not um, super proficient with firearms. Right. And I like, too, how he doesn't, like, you know, he suspects all this stuff based on the, you know, the evidence that he's collected and, and everything, but he doesn't just go off half-cocked. He, he tests his hypothesis just in case he's wrong. Right. ha. <laughs> You know they don't make 
movies this violent anymore, really. I mean, I guess they kind of do, but there was just something about, like, the gleeful violence (laughs) of the 80s, you know what I mean? With the, uh, you know, the squibs and stuff, you know, a lot of times they'll use uh, CGI for the blood, and it just does not look the same as as those squibs exploding. But I love all this stuff. There's something to be said about the catharsis of a good violent movie, too. Right. Catharsis, what's that mean, uh, Mark? (laughs) It's like a release, Mike. Yeah, it was cathartic. (laughs) Uh, For those of you who don't know, we're talking about... uh... American movie, and if you haven't seen American movie, which is a documentary about uh, Mark Borchard and uh, Mike Schenk, you should see that. It's a very good movie. It's cathartic. <laughs> you know, they have that Mike Schenk has that phone number you where he can call him. I wonder if that's still up. I don't know. That's a good question. He probably is an Uber, Uber driver now. Right. Buying the scratch-offs. Those are some of those like insane like parts in that movie. Like, where he's like, well, he's like, I, he's like, oh, you drinking? He's like, I'm an alcoholic. He's like, well, well if you're buying, I'm drinking. <laughs> What's all the fuck? He just calmly says he's an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> And then he He's does not care at all. <laughs> I don't have a problem, so I'll drink. Right? Uh. Throughout this movie, they um, Bruce Willis has uh, a pair of um, like skin colored, I guess, prosthetics over his feet since he's barefoot uh. for the entirety of the movie. I yeah. guess if you really look, there's a few shots where you can, where you can see like his real feet coming out of them. That's weird. But yeah, they, for safety reasons, they uh, obviously because. Um, you know, not just the broken glass, but there are, you know, other parts of, uh, of the, oh God, <laughs> there are other parts of the, um, you know, movie where he's running around barefoot and right bunch of stuff lying around. You know anything about electromagnetic seals on, uh, on No, vaults? I don't. <laughs> I do not. I, I. I feel like it probably doesn't make a lot of sense, but maybe it does. I don't know. I guess if it's, uh, you know, magnetically locked, it would be harder to open. But couldn't you just I cut think bank, power? bank vaults would have, like, yeah, you would think so. Because I would just. Assume... Isn't, isn't that why they want the LA, uh, the FBI in there? Because they know they'll cut the power? Oh, yeah, I think that's right. Yep. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That yeah, that's right. 
So I guess it makes sense in the in the uh, in the um, you know the, the narrative of the movie. They want they want uh, to be considered terrorists because they want the FBI to cut the power because that will release the electromagnetic lock. You know what? They should have uh, they should have brought up his feet at other points in this movie or in the movie series. <laughs> you know, like uh, he should have walked with a limp. Or or uh, or something, or, or mentioned uh, you know that his feet hurt or something like that at some in one of the movies because those kind of, those kind of lacerations are not going away. Right. You've done permanent damage to yourself, there, John McClane. Yeah, probably. This would have been a really different movie with Frank Sinatra. <laughs> <laughs> Come just... on, did you guys have any arithmetic? <laughs> I'm just thinking about. I'm just thinking about. Uh, you know, like he the some of the hostages were his daughter and his grandchildren were were there too. <laughs> and I'm just like thinking about an old man like skulking through this thing. I, I I can't imagine it would have been very successful at all. They must have <laughs> like been the, uh... they must have been holding their breath when they made that call to Sinatra. Please <laughs> say no. Please say no. The uh, cop part could have been played by uh, Sammy Davis Jr. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Wait, I think no. Yeah, he was still alive. I think. I think so too. Dean Martin died in uh, nineteen eighty nine. So. He was still alive, too. He could have been the other cop. <laughs> or no, he would have been Hans Krupper. <laughs> hey, come on now, Pally. <laughs> Why you gotta be holding that gun on me? Special cameo by uh, Jerry Lewis as the computer expert. <laughs> I could see him saying that line. The electromagnetic... <laughs> He's toast, lady. Well, that's the guy from the Burbs. Oh yeah, Tom Hanks. Cool. <laughs> oh, no, he's uh, his like his neighbor and friend. I love that movie. The Burbs is a great movie. That's a Joe Dante film who also did uh, Gremlins. In the Twilight Zone, or one of them. Mm. Yeah, not... another controversial Christmas movie, Gremlins. Yeah, I might. I'll probably, I'll probably bring that up on the podcast when we do the, our uh, Christmas podcast. But yeah, Joe Dante didn't direct the one where uh, um, those kids got killed. Yeah, that's that's good. That was uh, that was John Landis. <laughs> Is this Ode to Joy, I think? Mm-hmm. Ah, Merry Christmas. That's right. It's officially a Christmas movie.
like when like people who are like crooks in movies like open something and they're like Yahtzee, <laughs> right? Just one time when uh, one of them does that, I want the the boss to be like, uh, "Hey, come on, act like you've been here before. Show some professionalism." <laughs> Pretend like this isn't your first negotiable bearer bond, okay? Exactly. Uh, yeah, that Twilight Zone uh, thing. That was on Faces of Death, too. <laughs> For people that don't know, Faces of Death was a popular series of uh, DVDs that uh, showed real-life deaths. For the folks at home... Uh... Right, Tell the folks at home uh, who Vic Morrow was. <laughs> oh, no. Was. Yeah. Yeah, no, Vic Morrow was in a, a TV show my dad loves called Combat. And um, in a lot of, you know, t- uh, movies and stuff, he was a fairly poppy. He was also in the Bad News Bears, actually, the original Bad News Bears. Oh, yeah? He wasn't in the sequel? Um, I don't... Or the remake? No, I don't think he was in the... Well, no, he wasn't in the remake because he died in, in, <laughs> died in 1982. <laughs> in the, wow, that was 1982? I didn't know it was that early. Yeah, yeah in the uh, in the Twilight Zone movie. Uh, he played uh, some kind of racist. And um, he was, uh, it was... The scene was like a flashback to Vietnam and uh, explosions were going off and they had real helicopters there and... Something wrong, something went wrong, and one of the helicopters broke from its uh, crane and decapitated both Vic Morrow and the two children that he was carrying at the time. So, really, in a lot of ways, it was the perfect Twilight Zone ending. <laughs> I guess it was a hell of a twist. <laughs> he thought he was eating his carpets. Nope, he's dead. Oh God! But his daughter is uh, Jennifer Jason Lee. Really? Yep. That's odd. She was so traumatized, she uh, decided to be fully nude in the uh, Fast Times at Ridgewood High. Apparently. Yeah, that came out in the same year. That came out in 1982. Dude. It did. The year that she was taking, oh, so I guess I guess one of the uh, one of the silver linings is that uh, Vic Morrow didn't have to see his daughter uh, take off her clothes in a movie. <laughs> Yeah, so really, he got lucky. Oh God, those two kids, though, not uh, not so lucky. Oh, she was twenty there. I thought she was like she looked really young. I thought she was actually like you know. Oh yeah, she looked very underage. Young. I bet she aged rapidly after that. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> Her tragedy. Oh uh, yeah, that sucks. Sucks that yeah. he died. You know, and I mean. Uh, I don't know. I guess they could have done more to protect, uh, you know, him and the six and seven year old children that died. But I think that really like ruined uh, Jonathan Lannis's like career for a while. Yeah. Well, something like that would definitely stick with you. Are you guys laughing yet? <laughs> as we <laughs> as we talk about the uh, horrific deaths of three people. Two who are young children, we need to reiterate. Yeah, that's right. Six and seven years old. Asian children. So for... But you know what? They didn't have to see their co-worker's uh, daughter nude in a movie. <laughs> that's true. Oh, God. Oh. 
Anyway, so back to the film. Um, <clears throat> a lot of steam. <laughs> no, we're uh, <clears throat> we're coming to the uh, to the climax of the film. One of the uh, flashier moments. I don't think he did his own pull up because they cut away. <laughs> You gotta love the bombs that have like beeping and like flashing lights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's one of the one of the uh, the best attributes of a bomb is that it draws attention to itself. Right. Those guys wanted uh, revenge on him the entire film. Pretty much. Be funny if this was like a dog day afternoon situation where they just get away with it, and uh, and his revenge is quenched right now. Yeah. I'm mad at you. I'm going to make sure I engage in a fist fight with you. Yep. It's like one of those stupid things. So it's it doesn't quite reach that level, but uh, like um. Where, where they're like, hey, let's settle this with our fists like men. <laughs> when someone's got a gun on someone, why would that ever happen in reality? <clears throat> I mean, if I, if I happened to be in that situation and I was a bad guy, I'd be like, fuck you, and I'd just shoot him. <laughs> I don't need to prove I'm a man. I mean, you're going <clears> to <throat> die anyways. Right. Yeah, who are you going to tell? That's not sleazy at all. The, uh, <clears throat> yep. The, where they interview their young children. Yeah, lots of, um, lots of. I, I forgot to look at the one photo that was down the whole time. <laughs> lots of villains in this, uh, in this movie. Right. Everyone doing, uh, everyone doing things for selfish and stupid reasons, except for, uh, John McClane and Reginald Val Johnson. Naturally. I don't think Reginald Val Johnson could play a villain if he wanted to. Yeah, I don't know. He's so he looks like such a nice guy. I mean, really, he put up with Urkel for all those years. He's got to be somewhat tolerant. Mm-hmm. Did you, you imagine, like, on the set, like uh, Julia White was like a lot different? Yeah, probably. Probably thought he was like a badass, and like Reginald Val Johnson was like okay there, right? Did you ever you I think you showed me this, but I'm not sure. Um I think it was a college humor or a funnier die sketch or something like that. Um where uh the producers talk to uh talk to um Reginald Val Johnson as as uh or like he goes in to talk to them about uh Urkel, you know, becoming too too much a part of the show. No, I didn't see that. That sounds hilarious though. So. It is it is pretty funny. And like uh uh, Urkel comes in and is basically uh, a, vi- a villain. Pretty much, yeah. But I don't know. I don't even know how that works. He was so popular that he just came back like immediately. Like, how did they do that when they were like? Yeah, I don't know. I guess they have like kind of real time updates on stuff. I don't know. Who knows how the television industry works? I mean, we're in an entertainment podcast. We should probably know, but 
Oh, McLean. Now, I don't know exactly how bearer bonds work, so I don't know how much money each one of those represents. I believe they're stealing $640 million. Yeah, they're usually in really large increments, but you basically just have to sign them and you can be, you know, given the money from. They're in the movie Heat as well. That's like what they steal at the beginning. Yeah. They actually don't really make them too much anymore because of like how like you know easily they are sold and reused and that sort of thing. Yeah, it makes sense. Just flying so low. Yeah, it seems very dangerous. <laughs> Again, the terrorists, like their whole plan was just to kill every single person there. Yep. Or thieves, I guess. Yeah. I mean, at this point, they basically are terrorists. Yeah, they're, they're better at being terrorists than thieves, that's for sure. Yeah. That uh, you can tell as they get closer to the door that CGI does not hold up. Right. Here it comes. One of the, uh, besides him, yeah, the, the uh, basically, pre, I think I would say that the most iconic shot of the movie. Yeah, one for sure. In fact, I think it was on the top, on the covers of like the uh, DVDs and VHSs and stuff. Mm-hmm. Originally on the poster, he, uh, Bruce Willis wasn't really featured at all. Like you, like it was just the tower. That's funny. And then the, you know, as it, as it became more popular and everything, and his he became more popular, they, um, they photoshopped like his face on the side there. <laughs> there it is. 
Boom. And that is a hell of a shot. <laughs> The amount of tension that it that it builds, you know, even now is uh right. Hope uh, Jennifer Jason Lee didn't watch this one. Oh, God. <laughs> you know, um, it's hard to criticize Hans Gruber because, you know, he got a lot farther than I think most people would. But, yeah. But it's not the perfect plan. Not when the uh, the building is exploding around you and you're not out yet. <laughs> I like that Argyle's not in the movie much, but at, yeah. at certain points he becomes the movie's plot lord. <laughs> and of course, later Bonnie Bedelia will be in... Uh... Uh, the TV show Parenthood, based on the uh, movie Parenthood. <laughs> really? Yep. Yeah, she played the like the grandmother. Uh, wasn't Dex Shepard in that? Yep. I used to like that show a lot. I don't know who the main actors were though. Well, de- like the one. This is Bonnie Bedelia and Zach Dex Shepard. Well, Bonnie Bedelia played the grandmother, and then Craig T. Nelson played the grandfather. I remember that's right, he was in there. And um then the um the the kids were um Dax Shepard, Peter Krause, um, who was in Six Feet Under. Yeah, yeah. And um I'm trying to think, uh oh uh the the actually the uh, love interest from Bad Santa. I can't think of her name though. Bonnie Bedelia. <laughs> no, the dark-haired woman. She was also in that that TV show that I don't watch um, about the two girls. Well, the mom and the daughter. But the name is their girls' names. Yeah, I don't know. Sam and Cat. No, I don't, I don't know what it is. Yeah, I don't think it's that one. 
<clears throat> no, it's something else. But uh, oh, Gilmore Girls—that's what it is. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, the, so she was one of the daughters. Then um, someone who kind of looks like um, who kind of looks like Michelle Williams, but isn't was another one of the daughters. And I think there's five kids. Who am I missing? Peter Kraus, the two girls, um, Dax Shepard. I can't think, but I, I'm Wilford Brimley. Yeah, Wilford Brimley's the other, the other child, the other uh, adult son. Yeah. I always have him use like young lingo, so you all just mistake him for like a younger person. <laughs> What's up, dog? But it was, you know, it's one of those ones where it's like real, uh, like tear jerky uh, shows, like gotcha. drama. Because it wasn't the movie a comedy, really? Yeah. Well, the movie, yeah, the movie's like a a comedy drama mix, I would say. A dramedy. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's a hey. That's that's pretty good. That's a good way to uh, to shorten that. Did you just think of that? I think I read it somewhere before. <laughs> uh, here. <gasps> <laughs> I feel like he even quips before he even fully falls. Mm-hmm. He's just shot him in the brain stem. He's like, hold on a second. I'm uh, still falling. Happy trails. <laughs> this, uh, that the shot, his face, they got that reaction out of him because um, they uh, they told him, basically they told him, you know, he, he had to fall 20 feet into a, uh, like an inflatable thing. And he said, they said to him, you know, okay, we're going to push you on three. And they pushed him on two. (laughs) (laughs) So they got a, so they could. He was really afraid of heights. Yeah. So they could get a genuine uh, reaction out of him. I guess maybe it was only four. Eric Christensen, Dex Shepard, Peter Krauss, Lauren Graham. And then their, their spouses. Oh, did you see Erica Christensen? Yeah. Okay, I know that's the guy who played Darth Vader's sister. No, is it? Is she really? Uh, yeah, Hayden she... Christensen. That's his sister. Really, I didn't know that. This is in the movie Swim Fan. I don't know of her being in anything else, but that is his sister. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, I didn't realize that they were brother and sister, but um, yeah, she was. Uh, she was in it. Good looking actress. What mayhem. Seriously. This is a pretty funny part where the news uh, reporter shows up. Mm Mm-hmm. It's funny, like uh, for some reason, I'm reminded of uh, this thing that I that I watch sometimes called Pitch Meeting, 
uh, where basically it's a guy uh, playing two different roles, a producer and a writer, and it just cuts back and forth between them as he pitches a movie. And it's, you know, it's basically making fun of the movie. But uh, I was seeing all this and I was thinking like how eerily this kind of looks like 9-11 with all the paper uh, flying and stuff like that and everything. And how how it plays so, so differently now. And there was a pitch meeting where he was talking about like the airport and um, the guys like, and it, the movie took place in the early nineties. Um, and, uh, and like the mo- the movie that he was talking about was made in the early nineties. So he, every time he does a pitch meeting, he pretends it's, it's that time, you know, that, that year, because that's yeah. when the movie would get pitched. And he's like, uh, can someone really get through the airport that fast? And he goes, Oh yeah. Airport security is not that, that big of a deal right now. It's the early nineties. And the producer guy goes, Oh, <laughs> vaguely uh sinister vaguely sinister um comments about the future are tight (laughs) this guy just won't go down this is really the movie equivalent of uh like a the final boss where uh where you um you beat him, and then uh, like his uh, shielding comes back again, and you've got to you know find the other weak spot. Yeah, and apparently for him, well, the weak spot was uh, guns from Reginald Val Johnson. <laughs> I think the because he was like gun shy because he shot a kid, but it turns out he's just really quick on the gun at shooting people in general. Yeah, he's like, I wish that was a kid. <laughs> Oh, here's Argyle. Don't shoot Argyle. Right. I like how he waits so long at the charging limo to know that it's with him. <laughs> of course, McLean doesn't need me questioning, you know, from the police or anything. No, no, he can just leave. <clears throat> it's not like he'd have anything, uh... Not like he'd have anything material to say. Right. What's funny too is like I don't as far as I recall, she wasn't really watching the news the whole time. No, oh, that's not true. She saw the kids on there. That's well, right. yeah, she's yeah, yeah. I, I, I thought he punched him, which would make no sense because he didn't like, unless they had a brief discussion right. that we didn't see. He would have no idea about it. But I forgot that she did. He does look a little. He does look a little surprised when she punches him too. <laughs> There's nothing that saves a marriage more than your entire family being in danger and almost dying. <laughs> that's what I think everyone should take. So if your marriage is in trouble, arrange a scenario <laughs> that puts your family in danger and it will save your marriage. I'm going to disagree with that one. <laughs> yeah, don't take that advice. Uh, they still label them as terrorists. They should be robbers. Yeah, I guess. Yuli. Oh, there, there was definitely a few Germans in there. So that's weird because they yeah. uh, presumably, if they're German born, they speak at least some German. Right. But they just agreed to gibberish. <laughs> oh, hey, Kip Waldo, I found him. The convenience store clerk. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be hard to spot. <laughs> oh, well, that is our commentary of Die Hard. Um, I, I, I like this movie a lot. Uh, uh, I think um, it's definitely a good movie to ra- watch around the holidays or anytime, really. But uh, it certainly changed 
the, uh, well, at least temporarily, changed the action movie genre. We <clears throat> we get a lot more of the indestructible people now, though. Yes, for sure. But uh, thanks for watching, everybody. Uh, join us uh, every Thursday for our podcast, uh, Massive Late Fee. Find us on uh, Facebook, Massive Late Fee, uh, on Twitter at Massive Late Fee. Contribute to our Patreon, patreon.massivelatefee.com. Um, obviously, if you're listening to this, you're on Bandcamp, so I don't need to direct you there. If you have any uh, questions for us, anything you want to hear on the show or anything like that, you can uh, write to us, massivelatefee at gmail.com, or uh, send us a tweet with the hashtag massivelatefee, because I'll search the... Uh, the tweets and uh, find some questions there too. Um, But uh, yeah, thank you very much and we will see you later. Bye. Later.